Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. You're tuned into Korea on 3CR Community Radio. Thanks to Encyclopedia there for that hour. Um, so today we're going to be talking about some trouble in feminist spaces, I suppose. But first I'm going to give an acknowledgement of country. Um, so 3CR is, is broadcasting on the lands of the Kulin Nations. I pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples was stolen and sovereignty was never ceded. I'd like to extend my respect to any Indigenous listeners, um, including queer Indigenous people and sister girls and brother boys. Okay, so I'm joined in the studio today with Sister Zai. Hi. Hi, Iris. And I'm not sure I gave my name. My name's Iris. So, yeah. So we were both attending an event that we're going to talk about today called Decolonizing Feminism. And I guess it didn't really turn out in a way that I expected um, in terms of we had a pretty like trans-exclusionary person in, a, I guess we'd call herself a feminist, but I don't really, how can feminism be trans-exclusionary? And this unexpectedly came up in an event um, that was about decolonizing feminism. And building solidarity. Yeah. And it kind of has dominated a lot of the stuff that came out of the event. So we're going to go into that further later, but I thought we'd start off by playing some of the events. Um, or just so, yeah, you'll be hearing from Nilmini and the first, the first speaker, I think Candy Bowers. Um, and then we'll chat more about what sort of, ha- what sort of like happened in the event when we get up to a good point to have a chat. So I hope you like listening to this. And um, we follow the feminist ethics of speaking and listening. And this accounts for speakers and audiences alike. We try to listen and speak reflexively, um, especially when we're speaking for and about others. Um, We are aware and refrain from speaking instead of others or on top of others. And in a way, all this is practice. They're not prescriptions, but practices that, you know, with our speech, our behavior, our attitudes and actions, always be sensitive, respectful, caring. And the number one word is loving. So just with that, I'm just going to now invite um, Tima Bor to um, do a, an acknowledgement of the country. Tima is a founding member of the Loving Feminist Literature Collective, and she's um, also an interdisciplinary artist, urban planner, and a writer of uh, Baladong Nuga descent, who has brought unique stories into the broader public consciousness to her numerous events and her writing. She's published in um, in Inflection Journal, Right Now, Mianjin and Westerly, and she has co-produced uh, with Loving Feminist Literature, Wild Tongues, um, Zine 1, so Zine 2 is coming out. Thank you, Tima. Um, yes, like a lot of you here, my heritage is, um, well, sorry, I was going to say, I come here also as a guest. Um, my background is Belladong Noongar on my mother's side. So our people are in the Avon Valley, York, which is about three hours southwest of Perth. I've had this incredible privilege, like a lot of you, to make my home on what is now called Melbourne. And it's just been such an honour that I've been able to have this basically really incredible life here. So I really want to acknowledge that all of us here are gathered on the lands of the Kulin Nation, and I want to pay my deepest respect to their elders, past, present, and future. But I also want to acknowledge that we've got some incredible Aboriginal people here. It's such an honour that Karen Jackson is here in the room, 
she just constantly inspires me and has done just so much work not only for Aboriginal women but everyone in the community and it's really challenging work and she just does it with grace and elegance and I hope to one day be able to be like that and it's even more exciting in a way that we've got Eugenia Flynn actually doing a reading so yeah maybe let's give a little clap to those yeah. two. Distance. She has an amazing blog called Black Thoughts Live Here. If you haven't checked it out, please do. She's written some brilliant sort of opinion articles for The Guardian. And it's not only just writing, she does amazing community arts work, producing. And I'm so excited to hear what she has to say. Obviously, this evening we don't have a traditional owner. And ideally, we would do a traditional welcome to country which would take a really long time and we'd all go on a journey. None of us, we can't really do that in the sort of system we work in now. So I think for me, the best way to really acknowledge the country we are on is to actually, for me to reflect and re read some words by Lisa Belair. I'm hugely inspired by her. I never got to meet her, but she was from Queensland, but came to Melbourne and has just done, did so much incredible work for the Aboriginal community. She was a writer, she worked in community work, obviously a feminist, photographer. So I'm just going to leave you with a few words from Lisa Bellin. And also she has an amazing collection of poems called Dreaming in Urban Areas. So please source it out and read it if you haven't. So this is what Lisa says. Moving on and staying positive. I tell you, sometimes it is difficult to find the energy. I personally have to face racism, sexism, and curlyism. Non-Aboriginal and non-curly-haired people who insist on touching my hair, which is cool, depending on my level of patience. But there is more to me than my curly hair. Thank you. It is my great, let's get on. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to our MC this evening. We're very lucky to have her. She's in great demand. Candy Bowers. Candy is an international, oh, yeah, let's give her a round of applause. Candy Bowers. Candy is a NIDA graduate who has appeared, award-winning playwright, actor, and comedian. She's played main stage at Melbourne Theatre Company, Queensland Theatre Company and Circus Oz and she's toured her original works in Australia and internationally. She's the co-artistic director of Black Honey Company. I don't know if you saw the show with her real life sister, Kim Busty Beats Bowers. <laughs> Candy's work, for those of you who know and those of you who don't, delves into the heart of radical black feminist dreaming. It cuts and tickles in equal measure. Candy won the coveted Total Theatre Award in the UK, Youth Award, Youth Education Program Award in Adelaide Fringe, and the British Council of the Arts Realise Your Dream Award. Now you can catch her on the small screen in 2007. She has appeared actually in ABC's Newton's Law, and she will be appearing in The Ex-Prime Minister on Netflix. And her new play, On the Bear, is a fairy tale for the hip-hop generation. It premieres at Campbelltown Arts Centre in Sydney on May 26. Please give it up for the indomitable, irresistible Candy Powers. Feminist texts by brazen feminist book lovers. 
why we sold out. <laughs> yes. So, um, as a performance artist, poet, and lover of literature, of course, there are many black female writers that are the reason why I can even stand up here today. Every kind of moment in my, my life and career up until this point, there's always been a bunch of folks telling me that it's not possible. Um, that it's something, you know, taste is a big part of being a performer and um, trends and what we see and what we hear. So for me, I, I told a young lady who said she was surprised to see me on Newton's Law because early on in the program they described my character and she said, and then when I came on screen, she was, it was unexpected, you know. <laughs> And I was like, I was surprised myself, you know what I'm saying? I've never seen a plus-size, multiracial woman of the African diaspora with an Australian accent on an Australian TV show. Because there's never been one. And that's what we're here to talk about and to, I hope, lift as we rise throughout our careers. So um, one really influential writer for me growing up was Nikki Giovanni. Because, you know, there was a lot of crossover into hip-hop. So when I was 22, I wrote uh, a show called Inner Thigh, The Sister She Story, about two young girls that came from very different parts of Sydney, uh, a white girl from Cronulla and a black girl from Campbelltown. This is how we opened the show. She was born in the suburbs. She walked the cul-de-sac and redefined the street. She built a tree house so high that the moon slid down from the sky and dropped by for tea every Monday night. She is soul. Her dreams are made of colours unseen, places unconceived, coffee and cream. She hears steam. At 21, she realised and realigned her thoughts about her inner thigh. Her shame turned to delight, and this insight shook the earth into night. She is bad. <laughs> she cannot be boxed, sealed, or tied with a bow. She expands. She explodes. She expands. She explodes. Her rhythm is flow. She is proud, strong. She knows who she is, and she knows where she comes from. Has anybody ever heard Nikki Giovanni's ego tripping? Let me do it for you. <laughs> she was born in the Congo. She walked the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. She designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years crawled into the center giving divine perfect light. She is bad. She sat on the throne drinking nectar with Allah, got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to cool her thirst. Her oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from her birth pain created the Nile. She is a beautiful woman. She gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. With a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes, she crossed it in two hours. She is a gazelle, so swift, so swift you can't catch her. For a birthday present when she was three, she gave her son Hannibal an elephant. He gave her Rome for Mother's Day. Her son Noah built New Ark, and she stood proudly at the helm as we sailed on a soft summer's day. She turned herself into herself and was Jesus. Men intoned her ever-loving name. All praises, all praises, she is the one who would save. She sewed diamonds in her backyard, her bowels delivering uranium. The filings from her fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, she caught a cold and blew her nose, giving oil to the Arab world. She is so hip, even her errors are correct. <laughs> she sailed east to reach west and had to round off the earth as she went. The hair from her head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. She is so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal. She cannot be comprehended except by her permission. I mean, she can fly like a bird in the sky. 
is Ego Tripping by Nikki G. Zai. So that for me was the first time realizing that I was the center of someone's universe. If I was always going to be othered and, and pushed aside in my own world, that there were women out there that were not only central, but that they made the earth and every single part of it is a massively huge notion when you've grown up as a black girl in Campbelltown, New South Wales. <laughs> so finally, I just wanted to read a tiny little bit from my book, which I stole from my sister, which I think she stole from a library, <laughs> called Black Women Writers at Work, uh, Conversations with Maya Angelou, Tony K. Bambara, Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, Nikki Giovanni, Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison, Shaggy. I don't know where you can find it. I'm really sorry, but we will we'll hunt it down. Old Castle is the printer, and they're verbatim interviews um, about how these women have written their books. So once again, a little bit of a Bible um, for me, as a, both as a poet, a playwright, and uh, a writer. This is my favorite. Uh, Claudia asks Audra, for whom do you write? What is your responsibility to your audience? I write for myself and my children and for as many people as possible who can read me, who need to hear what I have to say, who need to use what I know. When I say myself, I mean not only the Audra who inhabits my body, but all those feisty, incorrigible black women who insist, insist on standing up and saying, I am, and you cannot wipe me out no matter how irritating I am how much you fear what I might represent. I write for these women for whom a voice has not yet existed, or those women who have been silenced. I don't have the only voice or all of their voices, but they are a part of my voice, and I am a part of theirs. <laughs> Lady is such a solid part of my, my everyday life, and I think she's the reason I get to do breakthrough stuff. Her quote, um, if I didn't define myself for myself, I'd be crunched into other people's fantasies of me and eaten alive, is core for me as an actor. This year I've got to play a lot of roles, and I've robbed a lot of men of roles. Um, <laughs> fear of that. So one of those roles has been nominated for a Green Room Award. Yes. And I'm amongst um, a lot of very classic uh, roles, because that's who usually get nominated. Miss Julie, Glass Menagerie, you know, Shakespeare, key Shakespearean roles, Chekhovian roles, white Europe basically. Um, and I play um, yeah, a white man in a really queer twist on My Fair Lady. <laughs> I just thought, if I win, I'll say the speech that the director of Moonlight said at the Oscars. But um, <laughs> what's really important to me is that possibility, as crazy as the oppression is, is inside of us. And so by turning that around, nights like this are our food. They're our cocoon and our food and our possibility. So you've been tuned into Queen Air. That is a recording from the Decolonizing Feminism Building Solidarity event, The Other Monday by the Loving Feminist Literature Events. And you heard from Nomini Fernando with introductions and Tima Ball, who drew from Lisa Buller. And last year you heard from County Bowers. Um, and we're going to... So the next thing that happens is we have a trans, like, exclusionary person with a platform. I'm not going to play any of that, but I'm going to play the bit after that. Um, but first, I think I'd like to remind um, everyone about the importance of su subscribing to 3CR. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, 
It doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hand. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. So yes, the next little bit I'm going to play is what followed after a speech ended that with some pretty, um, some like racist and some, some very like overt like anti-trans, ex- exclusionary trans misogyny. So I'm just going to play like sort of what, like what happened at the end of the speech. Uh, can we have the question? Yeah, it's just a, I just felt like yeah, 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 um, it doesn't mean that you are people who are of particular um, who are assigned a particular gender when they are born and then um, and then become another one are not um, are not ex- I mean they are also, they are to a very large extent and statistically prone to a lot of violence from um, cis women um, from homosexual women from yeah so women are not exempt or when we are very complicit in the violence that happens towards trans women. Okay, um, so I just want to start by saying thank you to the Indigenous women who were... So yeah, you heard that little bit there, and I'm I'm just going to open it up to discussion and and feelings I have. Well, I guess I'm not going to play like what was said in between there, but... In some ways, it just it was disappointing in how like that space became this like toxic, very like exclusionary space. And as like a trans femme person at the event, it was just I just wanted to like interject so bad. I just it was, and then nothing really happened until kind of the formalities of this speech was over. And yeah, it was just like a nightmare, really. <laughs> um, and Sister Zai. Yeah, it was um, something we've, we've talked about it a bit. And um, I think on the night, it was um, the whole intent and purpose of what we had gathered to do could not be accomplished at all. Because it was very palpable, the level of um, distress and in the room and there was also a fair level of confusion as well which was um a challenge within itself um i feel as though uh, the organizers were you know like you heard sangita giving you know because it was clear land mm, yeah. interjected yeah and then sangita responded and um and uh you know, gives gives a response. I mean, we can't. I can't speak for everybody in the collective, but I can say that we did would never put on an event that excludes like in that with that kind of speech as well. Like we, that was never our intention at at all, and we were all mm. in shock. Yeah, really. Like I think everybody was in in shock, and. Um, there's going to be, I mean, we, we're discussing this on, on intersections as well because there's a whole lot of things that happened um, before the event came on that changed the setup of the room. And I think if we had had that in place, uh, we could have probably dealt with it a lot 
more swiftly. And this is a discussion that you and I also had on the night, Iris. Yeah. When we talked about how the power dynamic that is set mm. up in rooms like that, where it's a, it's a lecture style setup, you don't feel like you can interject in a way because we've all been conditioned to just keep listening and absorbing this violence. And maybe I've been thinking about, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to talk from a personal perspective, mm-hmm. but I'm just going to think about like the moments that I've, because I've been educated in the Western system my whole life, yeah. most of which is a violence when you're not from within that particular context. And I was educated in a former colony in Africa as well. And, you know, like would get punished for speaking my language and all sorts of things. So I think what happens is that people adapt to really dysfunctional environments. And so what I've seen is that when I heard an opening that to me sounded really quite disrespectful um, because we had somebody speaking for others and I immediately switched off. That's how I cope. I just switched off because I, you know, like the level of microaggressions that you face and encounter on a daily when you, you know, are a black woman and walking through the world as a black woman is just mm. is just so much and, and yeah. it, it doesn't end. So that's my coping mechanism. And so when Claire got up to speak, I was like, oh, what happened? You know, like, I, like literally I had switched off because I heard something and I was like, that's a bit. But because I hadn't been listening closely to what she had been saying, I was like, oh, hang on a second. Was that? Yeah. And I think that was a confusion for a lot of people because we all came to this event wanting, you know, expecting it to be about decolonizing feminism mm. and building solidarity. So yeah. to hear those statements coming was actually really confusing. And it's not the vibe of our events at all. Like our events haven't been like that at all in the past. But yeah, I guess, you know, that's explanation. I think the most important thing and what we want to convey to everybody is just like what I want to convey to people. And I'm sure other members of the, the collective want to convey is that that, was, that should never have happened. You know what I mean? Like that, yeah, exactly. level, that level of pain, like inflicting pain on people in that way is just not, it's just not necessary. And... um yeah, like we've, I think the past, since it happened, like what, it's almost two weeks now, right, have been yeah. quite quite traumatic for everyone and um, exhausting. Yes, um, they definitely have been quite exhausting and emotionally traumatic, I guess. Um, in terms of myself personally, it's just like when you hear something that's, it's given a platform and it gives itself legitimacy and is like pretty much des- denying that I can exist. It's just like pretty like shattering and I was pretty like s- distraught the night and I was just like, yeah, it was just, it just even like small things. I think like if, if I was sitting next to someone, I, I knew I, something would have happened, but I wasn't. So, and it would have been stopped earlier, but I just didn't have any perspective on, because there's always, like, I suppose, like, feminism comes from this history of, um, like, this, this, these veins of, con- like, quite conservative trends that police gender, and, like, I'm very aware of this, this history, and it affects my engagement with feminist spaces, because there's these people around, like, who are, like that still exist in these, like, networks of influence and they still exist and cause this, then do this, like, gender-policing violence. And, yeah, I mean, it's just no no good. It's, like, it just it has to be, like, those networks and stuff, it needs to be, like, expunged. It's just, it's, it's just unacceptable and it was... And, it's, and I suppose the effects are still, like, with me, like, two weeks later and like, even talking about it on radio is quite emotionally heavy and stuff like that. I, um, yeah, I hear you. And I've, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, I think it would be patronizing of me as well to say, yeah, I understand, yeah, because everything comes from a life experience perspective yeah you know so i can only i can only try and relate um 
and that would probably be um, not adequate anyway, you know. Because, I mean, my, my instinct is to take the pain away. Like, that's my instinctive reaction, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and to find the right words to say to take the pain away from everyone. And I think that's that's kind of the, the mode that we've all been in um, as as the people who are seen as the organizers of that event, you know, and we asked specifically for people to speak for themselves. We were expecting a presentation about yeah. ageism and disability, specifically in relation to the NDIS, which is where the mm. speaker started off and then went off on this tangent that was harmful to people of color and harmful to trans people as well. Um, and we've never had this experience before. And I think it's, it's tough because the learning has to come out of a violence. And it's also tough because the learning comes as a reaction to an act of violence, um, as opposed to the learning coming from a dialogue, you know, mm. um, and coming from, um, people setting their own terms of reference for the discussion. And that's what I feel is lacking. And I, that's what I feel. And, you know, I think after we got out of try to make, you know, make, make sure that everybody's okay as possible mode. And then we kind of turned to ourselves. And I think for the most part, we're all mad because you can hear from uh, Nilmini's opening remarks, from Timmer's opening remarks, from Candy's opening remarks, that there were things we wanted to talk about that we couldn't even talk about yeah. because our entire event was hijacked by a discussion that I'm still trying to even figure out if it belongs to intersectional feminism because intersectional the 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 person who's the originator of intersectional feminism understands that the um the rates of violence against black trans women are high like crazy high yeah. you know and though the, that particular demographic is always taken into consideration in her work around policing and then also we talk about Audre Lord, like for our feminist collective it's all about Audre Lord and Sarah Ahmed you know and Audre Lord is queer yeah you know mm. and and so for us it's like as well when, I mean for me specifically when I think about my my feminism and the origins of it like I struggled at like uni here because I couldn't relate to the feminism here you know like the yeah. concepts of yeah. the concepts of gender that exist here are a violence to me as a person as well you know and mm. so and that's and that's just on a cultural level so it's like we're creating a platform so we can articulate these concepts and we can talk about them together and create new spaces for fresh dialogue and this happens and then we're we're consumed mm. yeah by this discussion that is i think it's an important one to have but i'm kind of wondering to what extent intersectional feminism is implicated in that and how we then speak into it as well you know what I mean and there's a lot to learn mm, yes I guess like I, a few weeks ago I encountered a quote um by Sylvia Rivera a trans woman of color that she wrote in Queens in, Queens in Exile in the early 70s and she talked about the split that developed in these like these lesbian sort of circles where this like bunch of cis women lesbians went off and developed their like exclusive theory whereas before like a few years earlier like it wasn't the case so that this and and how that the effect of this historical moment has this like long-running effect in terms of like to this day we have this like lineage of so-called radical feminists that 
that understanding of gender is just based on this extremely violent, like, cis supremacy, and it's just completely wrong, and it has no place in intersectional feminism, um, as I understand, as I understand it. And, yeah. I, you know, I mean, if we, if we came back to very, I think for me, what a fundamental definition of feminism is, is that it's about, it's about supporting one another and having the highest respect and highest regard for one another, yeah? Like, if we just came back to it in that way, it's really disappointing what happened. Like, it's... I'm really disappointed. Hmm. And... Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and I'm thinking about, like, like this doesn't, I suppose, like, I wasn't expecting at this event, but... Like, this has a history, these, like, moments of trans exclusion. They come up all the time. And it's the reason why there are so few... Often there's so few, like, trans people and trans women at feminist events is because of this ongoing, like, legacy of this gender policing and this ongoing legacy of, like, it tends to be women with more power, so it tends to be, like, more white cis women that, like, enforce the norms in terms of who's accepted and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, this, like, has un- ongoing effects... And I guess, like, to make it happen, I suppose, like, like things have to be actively made to be, like, safe for trans people. Otherwise, they're not going to be. Because, like, why does society, despite what you might hear in the mainstream media that some people might have the picture, is still hostile to, like, trans people? Like, we see it in the, like, the high rates of violence faced by trans women, women of colour in particular and, and sister sister girls in particular in Australia um so yeah so like so I guess like events they have to be proactive otherwise like these people are going to get a platform it's going to happen again and that's not progressing feminism at all that's just aiding this sort of like backlash that was seen in terms of um a lot of mainstream media sort of picking up a quite conservative vein of understanding gender and then policing trans people in terms of safe schools. We've seen a lot of that last year. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, like I like I mentioned earlier, we're going to have a long discussion about this on intersections. So at five o'clock, I'm actually going to talk about um, four points that we've come up with for moving forward and making sure that our spaces are safe because... You know, there were also racist comments that were said. Yeah. And so we're dealing with both, you know. Mm. And um, like I said, I suppose there's there's something that happens when you when you live in dysfunctional societies where racism underpins everything that you learn yeah. in the curriculum, you learn to switch off. And so it's about being alert as well, isn't it? And that's that's all we mm. can really. I mean, that's all I can really say about myself in that in that context. And I, I recognize that now. I recognize that that's a coping mechanism that yeah. I have in place, because yeah, otherwise I don't think I would have ever made it through uni and done what I needed to do in order to to exist in in this world the way it's been set up. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, yeah. And the um and you're right. Like the the it needs to be a safe space the conversation needs to be extended to include um voices of people who are who are supportive and you know no many will speak more towards that process of you know of vetting the speakers better and um i think what's really unfortunate and what we we realized after the fact as we coped with all sorts of interesting comments on our facebook page is that we landed we're like caught in the crossfire of a turf war and that is not our intention and that's not where we want to be you know and it's Mm -hmm. not it's not fair for us and the hard work that we've done for several years now in fact it erases the work of many many women of color who were present and on that platform giving voice to issues and topics that haven't been heard before as well Mm. you know so that that all of that was like for you know we're once we had attended to everyone else, then we attended to ourselves. Cause, and that's and that's what makes me angry as well. Is that there's still this assumption that black women have to take care of everyone else first, <laughs> and 
and then we can think about ourselves afterwards. And I think we have to create spaces where where our needs come first and our terms of reference shape the discussion. And so that's something we have to take responsibility for and be more assertive around that. Mm. Yeah, for mm. sure. Yeah, I suppose speaking of um, like the women of colour at the events, I was thinking we could go to a go to Sangeetha um, who spoke about Indian feminism from the ancient to the Dalit at the events. That sounds and, good. And hello to anyone that's tuned in. You're listening to Queenie on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your AM dial or, or digital radio and you can find us podcasted on the 3CR website as well. Um, That's right. This is Brother West from the American Empire trying to keep alive the legacy of John Coltrane, Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone, and I am so glad you are listening to 3CR because 3CR is a force for good. It's telling the truth and allows you both to laugh, not at, but with others. Oh, what a grand radio station it is. Mahadevi Akka, and she wrote predominantly in Kannada, which is the South Indian language. And she sometimes even considered a deity herself in South. So this is just Sangeetha Thanapal at the Decolonizing Feminism event. And she's actually even on pinup posters now. So she's really interesting to me as a religious figure who clearly did not play by the rules of women respectability, but who is still really beloved in South India. So I'm going to read um, sections of her poems as one. You're like milk in water. I cannot tell what comes before, what after. Which is the master, which is the slave? What's big, what's small? Oh Lord, why does Jasmine, if an ant should love you and praise you, will he not grow into demon powers? I have fallen in love, O oh Mother, with the beautiful one who knows no death, knows no decay, and has no form. I have fallen in love, O oh Mother, with the beautiful one who is without any family, without any country, and without any peer. Chennamallikarjuna, which is a Kannada term for Shiva, the beautiful is my husband, fling into the fire the husbands who are subject to death and decay. I have Maya for mother-in-law, the world for father-in-law, three brothers-in-law like tigers. I will give this wench the slip and go cuckold my husband with my lord. My mind is my maid, and by her kindness, kindness, I join my lord white as Jasmine, and I will make him my good husband. The second part of uh, women that I'm reading is a Dalit feminist writer called Richie Tomar from Lucknow, and it's called Dalit Feminism, a rejection of, a transformation of rejection into resistance. For the upper caste woman, her family is her world and centered on individual liberalism. On the other hand, for the Dalit woman, her community is her family and she works towards the upliftment of that community. Dalit women are considered as the other and this is the impact of centuries-long alienation and loneliness created by patriarchal and brahminical values at all levels in society. Even among women, she is perceived as other. She belongs to the lowest category manifested in the condition of a social, physical, economic and political vulnerability. The Dalit woman is a Dalit among Dalits. In the Indian context, caste, class, and patriarchy are the three hierarchical axes of social structure for Dalit women. Caste oppression, gender subjugation, and class exploitation are all interlinked together. Dalit feminist theory seeks to uncover and analyze the cultural societal specificities which construct the Dalit woman and is aimed towards social justice. In centuries to Dalit men, they suffer more due to their dual oppression, being Dalit and being women. Thus, violence against Dalit women is rampant. If you are born into this world, it is best you are born a man. Born as a woman, what good do we get? We only toil in the fields and in the home until our very vagina shrivels. Dalit women have to put up with this triple oppression of class, caste and gender. They die in order to live. Dalit women have been misrepresented in Indian literature. Most of upper caste male writers are biased towards Dalit men, women. When upper caste men are not busy raping and killing them, they write stories where Dalit women are portrayed as victims of the lust of higher caste men and never as rebels who fight against the injustices perpetuated upon them. By depicting such stories, writers gain sympathy for victims, but such routine treatment is not enough. They have completely ignored the fact that Dalit women can resist and fight like any other victim of social oppression. In literature, a Dalit woman is never a fighter, but always a victim. 
Dalit feminism is considered as the discourse of discontent, a politics of difference, apart from mainstream Indian feminism, which has marginalized Dalit women. Dalit feminist discourses not only question the mainstream Indian feminism's hegemony in claiming to speak for all women, but also the hegemony of Dalit men to speak on behalf of Dalit women. My mind is crowded with many anecdotes, stories not only about the sorrows and tears of Dalit women, but also about the lively, rebellious culture, our eagerness not to let life crush or shatter us, but rather to swim vigorously against the tide. engage with the text. Um, there are many reasons why I kind of chose these two women. Um, we often, I think, think about our cultures as less patriarchal now than they were in the past. And I think that it's interesting to me when South Asian culture is actually at different times more feminist in the past than it has been today, especially when you get into specific details of communities and their practices. I do think the moral arc of the universe is long and that it bends towards justice, but I don't think that this arc is necessarily linear. I also think that we see religion as an oppressive force for women all over the world, um, regardless of the type of religion, because it is, right? But in many cases and traditions, I think, like with um, Mahadeviaka, it's kind of liberatory. A lot of radical thought, present radical thought that we look at, we see religion as old, traditional, um, unchanging, unable to keep up with the times. Within social justice circles, religion and religious people are looked upon with disdain, they're seen as not very woke. Um, as someone who's quite religious and whose politics are to some extent based on religious philosophy, I'm interested in a liberation theory that incorporates spirituality, gives us the space to think about our personal and political practices, undergirded in like a spiritual belief, something that understands the material world and our material existence because we can't pretend as if capitalism isn't trying to kill us and that we can <laughs> transcend it with meditation or good thoughts is actually quite ridiculous. <laughs> You know, but what we need is a theory that incorporates the spiritual into the material as part of liberation. And for me, this woman who lived like 900 years ago, who clearly had an intense relationship with God that manifested as radical feminist poetry was really interesting. The second reason I read from these texts is because we think about, and we talk about decolonialism a lot, which is what we're supposed to be doing here, and we are, right? But every woman that we read from and we um, talk about is from the West. Every writer, every intellectual, every feminist book, they're all written by women of color, which is great, but they're all written by women of color in the West. And Spivak is the only one I can think of because she was born in India, but basically by the time we get to Spivak, she was already in Colombia. Yeah. 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 So there's often this idea that women from the global south are merely recipients of feminism from the West. We are passive absorbers. <laughs> and I really think that this is a belief that we are um, incapable of knowledge production on our own. Our work is erased, co-opted, appropriated, and passed over, not by white feminists, but by women of color in the West. And I'm saying this as a woman who grew up in Asia, whose work on racism in a Southeast Asian country is seen as less important because my work doesn't center whiteness and because it casts other people of color as oppressors. And it's also one of the reasons why I wanted to read from a Dalit feminist because we talk about the caste system as being one of the oldest systems of repression in the world. But this also means that Dalit movements are one of the oldest resistance movements in the world. Um, Dalit feminism existed for thousands and thousands of years, as long as the caste system has, and it's possibly the oldest form of stratified oppression. But upper caste and class South Asian feminists use American terminology and work, undercut and deny the feminism in India and Dalit women who are organizing. And this is really the first feminism that we know as South Asian communities, not that superficial North Indian daisy whatever that is, I don't know what that is, okay. Um, for example, when we think about the concept of colorism all over the world, there's a general understanding that it's founded on anti-blackness, and it is. But in South Asia, it's not, because it's actually premised on anti-Dalitness. The Dalits have been un an underclass in South Asia years before colonialism, before the spread of slavery, before all of these things. But there's no space for us to talk about this on a global stage. A global stage that is hegemonized and controlled by American social justice discourse. Solidarity is really important, and I'll never pretend that I'm not influenced or moved by women of color, especially black women, because we are, and we never want to erase their labor. But there's a reason that it's black women from America that I've read, not black women from Africa, from South America, from Asia, and yes, there are black women in Asia. There's a lot of problems between us as women of color, and it's not as simple as white against the rest of us. Um, when I think about the category of Asian and how the representation is only East Asian, or beige passing Southeast Asians, we never see brown, even though half of Asia is brown. Chinese shows, Chinese writers, Chinese intellectuals, this is what is conflated with Asian to the point where that's the only thing that exists. In the piece Thomas talks about, 
how Dalit women write in regional languages, not in English. Um, and to me, I think about how being English educated and having the ability to speak in English is already a sign of privilege. English is the lingua franca of the world, and this is because of colonialism. But colonized people who have the access to this cannot deny how much easier it is for them to be heard and listened when they talk about their oppression and identities. Um, I think that when women of color in other parts of the world speak, about, uh, speak they, they don't get the worldwide visibility that um, women in the West do. So basically, because I'm getting a lot of your time is up, uh, <laughs> I want to say that I've been working on producing, work, I've been working on and producing race theory for a while now, and I find a lot of our current discourses to be quite boring. It's quite overly concerned with performative call-out culture and internet celebrity, but only insofar as people are perfect, because the moment they make a mistake, they call trash and they dispose of, I'm really not interested in the disposability culture of capitalism. So lately, I find myself drawn to women writing in a language not in English for audiences that aren't white or Western. And I really hope in the next few years that we get to see them get the kind of visibility that women of color in the West have. Hello, everyone. Again, you're listening to Prania on 3CR Community Radio. You're here with Iris, and I'm joined in the studio with Sister Zai. And we're coming towards the end of our show now. Um, I think, yeah, I suppose a few more thoughts we're just thinking about solidarity and things being in terms of a dialogue with different people with some other things we've been thinking about. Um, do you have anything else on that quickly? Yeah, so, I mean, I was, I was thinking about um, how important it is to have have these discussions and I was just saying that I'm a bit upset that it's it's these discussions are going to come about after this event and look like a reaction as opposed to a genuine a genuine um, um, a genuine uh, interest. I don't want to use interest; it's such a horrible word. Sounds like you're scientifically examining something. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know. We need to obviously, you know, we we need to have a discussion that is that includes a broader section of 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 women um, than uh, was presented on the day. Like I think that's that's mm, that's yeah. obvious. That's very clear. Yeah. Um. And I mean, if we're thinking about solidarity as well, I mean, we need to think about allyship because you know the, another thing is that the very few people actually stood up to say anything about no one stood up. Yeah. <laughs> to say anything about the racist comments. Yeah. And that of course, you know, like I say that I I just kind of switch off. That's a functioning yeah. mechanism for people who are on the receiving end of that stuff. And so we mm-hmm. rely on our allies to Yeah. And it was it was great that Claire and it was great that Shah both stood up and um and made those comments. Um and uh yeah, cuz I mean otherwise everybody else was just triggered. So, yeah, there's a lot to think about like creating safe spaces yep. and um you know having having a broader uh, representation um on on the, in the mm. discussions and i guess as well because it wasn't it wasn't really a panel discussion it was a as a reading but because of the way that the room was set up it looked like it was a panel discussion mm. um it, it got really strange as well yeah yeah it did and it's, yeah it's about Very all strange. we've got time for on this hour and stay tuned for hip sister hot with sister Zai <laughs> for the next hour um and i'm gonna go out with ama asu who's like playing at transgenre tonight uh, an all trans and gender diverse night that's on at the howler tonight from 5 30 p.m so i might see some listeners there you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.